We're going to be starting tonight a tshuva of the Sefer Me'il Tzedakah by Rabbi Yonah Lansofer. Rabbi Lansofer is not as well known as a lot of other figures we're talking about. He was a 17th, early 18th century Bohemian rabbi in Prague. Uh, apparently he was uh, highly regarded in his time, although and his svarim are still classics, although he's less well known today. I don't think we know that much biographically about him. He was a halachist. He may have studied Kabbalah also. He was apparently a sofer by trade. That's the name, Lansofer. He was also uh, something of a mathematician. His farm have uh, synopses of Euclid. He just published a whole appendix with uh, geometrical proofs and stuff. But he has chuvas. He has several svarim, including his sefer Mil Tzedakah, collection of his responsa. We're going to do uh, a favorite chuva of mine tonight from Mil Tzedakah. I've discussed this in other contexts. You may have heard this, but interesting case is as follows. The case involved, briefly involved, a group of families who wanted to make aliyah from somewhere in Europe. They had small children, toddlers as young as two or three years old, he's going to explain, and some people objected, some people felt that they had no business dragging, making aliyah, dragging these little kids on an arduous and dangerous journey, and the question was, do they have the right to do that? So, in the course of the tshuva, he's going to discuss a number of major issues. First of all, what exactly is the importance of aliyah in Judaism? Second, how does the danger how does the danger uh, question figure into this? Can you do a mitzvah even if it's dangerous, the mitzvah aliyah in particular? Third, how do we deal with the fact that these are young children, that they aren't uh, old enough to make the decision of their own free will? Fourth, if the local basin objects, do you have to listen to them if they're making a mistake? And fifth, he's going to discuss the questions of making aliyah if you don't have viable parnas in Eretz Yisrael. All these points, he has a number of interesting things to say about all these different uh, points, so we'll, we'll go through the tshuva, see his analysis of this question, and compare it to the way other posts can have discussed related aspects. So he says there were, in the beginning with the second line or so, there were there were three good friends, they were idealistic, they decided it's time to make Aliyah, it's time to go to Israel. Them, they were married, their wives, and their young children. Ketanim Hagdolim, young children, older children, as young as B'nai Shalosh, as young as toddlers who were two or three years old. And they were, they were all gung-ho, they were ready to do this. Now, people didn't like this. The neighbors, society, shoemates didn't like this. They said... They, 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 were, they, were, they were muttering about this, they were skeptical about this. They said, unheard of, no one ever does this, no one ever travels a long distance, a far distance. And today it's a plane ride, back then it was probably an ocean voyage, he's going to discuss that at length in the tshuva. In a foreign country, you don't, they don't, you don't speak the language there. It's dangerous, a sea voyage. You do all this with young children. Even if you want to risk your life, you want to do it, fine, that's one thing. Who gives you the right to risk the lives of young children here? You're old, you're strong, you're tough, you can, uh, you, you, you can, you can grit your teeth and do this, he says, but the children are more delicate. A, you didn't ask them, they're, they're too young to consent, and B, they're, they're, not as, they're not as tough as you, they're more delicate. And the, the, the Shina Yavir, the climate differences, Nanua Hasfinos, the bumping and jostling of the voyage. And not only were people muttering about it, the local Basin, Basin Iram, the local Basin was ready to interdict them and say, you may not leave, you may not drag your kids along with the voyage. So they asked the Shiloh, they asked Rabbi Lansofer, what is the halacha? Is this something we need really to avoid doing? Do we have to drop our plans for Aliyah? 
we have to listen to the bass, and we just go regardless. So his tshuva is a long one, and he goes through, and as we said, a number of important points. His first point is, what exactly is the imperative to make Aliyah? We know from the Talmud, we know from Jewish tradition, it is spoken quite highly of, but what exactly is the imperative to make Aliyah? He begins with a discussion of that. I only excerpted a small point of this, but he says, the Ramban, so, so we know that we have Tarag Mitzvahs, and we know that the Rambam, the, the Gemara doesn't actually list what the Tarag Mitzvahs are, just makes a brief statement, there are 613 of them, doesn't tell you what they are. The Rambam gives one of the most famous lists of his version of what they are. He does not actually count the Mitzvah to make Aliyah as one of the 613. Ramban does. Ramban wrote kind of glosses, notes on the Tariq Mitzvahs. He, he both struck out some of the ones Ramban counted and added in other ones to make up the difference. He ended up with the same 613, but with a slightly different list. A dozen or two out, a dozen or two in. So the Ramban did actually count Aliyah as a mitzvah. The Torah tells us repeatedly things like, you, you will go into Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Canaan, be Rishtamosav, Yishavtamba, you shall inherit it, you shall settle there. Ramban understands this is actually a mitzvah. There is a mitzvah upon Jews to go and, to go and live and conquer and settle in Eretz Yisrael. It's not just any mitzvah, it is as important a mitzvah as all the other mitzvahs combined. It is the most important, the most important mitzvah. As we said, it's not so simple. Not everyone agrees to the Ramban that it's actually one of the 613 mitzvahs. But the point is, nobody disagrees that it is something a Jew is supposed to do. The, the Talmud has all kinds of statements about people who live in Eretz Yisrael get all kinds of blessings and are in praise and are highly thought of, and people who live in Chutzlarts are bad and critical of them. Now the Talmud itself, most of them lived in outside Eretz Yisrael. We have the Palestinian Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, whose rabbis were in Eretz Yisrael, but the, the Talmud Bavli, which is the more important to the two Talmudim, the more authoritative one, is, it was composed by scholars who lived in Babylonia by and large, and the Jewish community was larger and stronger in Babylonia. That takes us to a key question, if it's really so important to live in Israel, why did so many rabbis in the time of the Talmud and for the next 1,500, 2,000 years not live in Israel. And so, so besides this tshuva of the Miltadaka, there is a great deal of discussion and debate before him, after him, how important is it, how imperative is it for a Jew to live in Israel? And one of the points often made by those who downplay its importance, they've often argued, there were so many Jews, so many rabbis who never really made an effort. There were, there were always some who did, there were always a handful of Jews who did, but, and it was difficult, to be sure, it was difficult. But at the end of the day, there are so many Jews who never did, even Jews who are religiously deeply committed and who tried hard to do all the mitzvahs, why don't they try to go to Israel? It was really so, if it was really a must, an absolute imperative, a mitzvah, one of the, one of the 613 mitzvahs, like eating matzah or taking a lulav, why don't more Jews do it? Some argued that uh, it's not really a mitzvah. Others argue that there were other reasons why Jews historically did not go to Israel, not all of which apply today, and we'll see from the course of the tshuva in the next section what some of these reasons are, why Jews may not have always gone to Eretz Israel. But he begins the tshuva by establishing that there is a, a, a mitzvah, according to many poskim at least, there is a mitzvah to make aliyah, to go to Eretz Yisrael. So why indeed don't, uh, what are the major dispensations offered by the, by the halacha for not going to Israel? So it's interesting that there is halacha in the Talmud about going to Israel. It's not actually discussed directly in the context of do I have a mitzvah to go to Israel. It's discussed in a civil law context. It's discussed in the laws of marriage. The, the halacha is that if two spouses cannot agree on where to live, the Talmud actually gives us rules for deciding between their conflicting claims. If one of them wants to live here and one of them wants to live there, so we have a series of rules for how to decide which spouse wins. One of the rules is 
that Hakol Malin Eretz Yisrael Ve'en Hakol Motzin. If one spouse wants to go to Israel, make Aliyah, one spouse wants to stay in Chutzlar, or vice versa, they live in Israel. One spouse wants to go to Chutzlar, one spouse wants to stay in Israel. The basic rule is the spouse who wants to go, go or stay in Israel wins over the spouse who wants to remain or travel to Chutzlar. So much of the discussion, as we'll see throughout this tshuva, much of the discussion of the parameters of going to Eretz Yisrael takes place, takes place in the context of this, this, this halacha in, in, in Shulchan Aruch and Ezra about, about spouses arguing where to live. And a lot of the discussion is, how does this apply to Zman So the discussion really begins with Tosis. So on, on this Gemara, on this mission that says that a spouse, the spouse who wants to go to Eretz Yisrael wins, Tosis gives two potential reasons why this doesn't apply in his time to Zman so this is about 800 years ago. One reason, he says, is the reason of Rabbi Chaim Cohen. Chaim Cohen is an interesting one of the Balitos. who's often had uh, kind of interesting or creative ideas. In this case, he says, today, in his time, there was no mitzvah to go to Israel because there are many mitzvahs at Tluyas Baretz. There are many of the agricultural mitzvahs, Truma, Shemitah, these types of mitzvahs. They're very hard to do. They're very hard to get right. Therefore, the, the concern with getting the mitzvahs wrong is so great, it's better to stay in Chutzlart. This is widely rejected by later Achronim, Marit, and others have said, I mean, yeah, some mitzvahs are hard, God wants you to do them anyway. Do your best and make an effort, and that's part of being a Jew. You do, you do what you have to do. It's hard, and we figure it out. Today, many people live in Israel, and they manage. So, so what's the... That reason doesn't have a lot of traction among the later poskim. The main reason that Tosis gives, the one that does have a lot of traction later, which is actually codified in the Shulchan Aruch, is that it was dangerous. Now, when they say dangerous today, when we think of danger, we think of terrorism, we think of Iran, we think of you know, geopolitics and stuff. What they meant by dangerous was mostly the journey itself, not Israel per se, but any, any long journey was dangerous. As we'll see in the continuation of the tshuva of the Miltadaka, danger to them meant A, shipwreck, if you're traveling by sea, B, piracy, if you're traveling by sea, or highwaymen. Tosu said in his time, it was, it was long voyages were dangerous, and therefore, therefore the spouse cannot compel a spouse to travel today beyond a certain, the distance is great enough. Similarly, the host have said, that's a dispensation, we, that's one dispensation we have for not traveling, because the trip is dangerous. Now, obviously, today the trip is not dangerous. I mean, there's a minimal danger, but it's quite low. It's, it's certainly not what Tosis had in mind when he said it was dangerous. So up to the time of the Shulchan Aruch and later generations, Poskin was still talking about the danger. And obviously, today, with the improvement, uh, with the advance of civilization, improvement of air travel, the danger is minimal. Yeah, there have been occasional hijackings, occasional air crashes, but on the whole, though, the risk is, is, is so low it almost certainly would not have been included in what Tos was called as dangerous. And today, there's a whole discussion about Ben Shingomel when you, when you have an uh, airplane flight. Everyone pretty much agrees that statistically it's not that dangerous. The question is, it still falls into the same category of a voyage, which used to be dangerous, but actual danger it isn't. But in Tos's time, it was still considered dangerous. And the Miltzedakah discusses this point. He says, what about, Tosa says it was dangerous. So do we actually have to be concerned with this danger? So the Miltzedakah says, there's no question Tosa is correct. There's no question that in principle we, we grant Tosa's point that when it's dangerous, the mitzvah does not really apply. That was true even in time of the Beis if, if, if the given circumstances were that it was dangerous, then you don't have to go. And whenever, so this is now in the third paragraph, he says, whenever was a clear sakana, then certainly the halachas don't apply. However, he says, Bismanenu, he quotes earlier authorities who have tried to give guidelines. None of them give uh, actual quantifiable percentages and likelihood of risk, but they, but they use kind of qualitative guidelines. 
So he quotes, for example, a Chuvah the Mabit, and an excerpt of that part who says that as long as the, the travel is frequent and regular and ships pass back and forth, that indicates the danger is not that high. The Nimtze, he says, Bismanenu, in our times, again, so this is 17th century or maybe early 18th century, in our times, three, four hundred years ago, where the ships, Shasvinos, Halchos, Yubos, Bechal, at least during the summer, ships are traveling back and forth regularly. We find this in many chuvas. The, sh- the ships did not travel nearly as much in the winter. The winter was considered reckless because of storms, I guess, or the cold or the ice. But, but during the summer, where the weather was, was milder, that's when that one was considered sensible and reasonable to travel. So today, he says, and I guess that's when these, that's when these families are planning to travel in the summer. So he says, he says the dangers of shipwreck, of the, of, of the voyage itself, are, are minimal today, he says. What about piracy? He says, even though today, he says, there is Sakonis Listim, Nalayam, there are pirates uh, roaming the seas. Says, that, that's nothing new, he says. There, there was always like that. Because uh, I'll always recognize that the famous Talmudic rule, travel in general is presumptively dangerous. That's why, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Talmud says there are four categories of people who, who bring a carbon toda or bench gomel, and they are someone who's sick and is healed, a woman in childbirth, someone who is uh, someone who travels, someone who travels on the on the sea, someone who's someone who is captured and released, but someone who takes a sea voyage benches gomel. That's why some people today bench gomel only on flights that traverse the ocean, even though today the danger is pretty much the same, minimal either way. But at least it's reminiscent of the old categories, which were Hochayam and sea voyages were particularly dangerous. That's nothing new, he says. There was always this danger of the danger of piracy or the danger of of uh, losses at sea. And still, Chazal still said the halacha. Chazal also knew there was dangers of piracy. They still said that these halachas of going to Israel apply. So you see that this, that 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 sakana was considered normal and acceptable, and acceptable risk was not a was not a high enough risk to deter us from traveling to Israel. He says, and the and the, and the same thing with uh, with the shipwreck. He says that. As the mission itself says that you go to Eretz Israel, even though there's always some danger of shipwreck. So he says, maybe not during the winter, he says in parentheses, that during the winter it's more dangerous, maybe not. But certainly he says that the dangers of shipwreck and of piracy are minimal. They, they existed in Talmudic times too. The Talmud is still not so concerned with them. And therefore, we should not be concerned with them either. And so on. Now he addresses that the question of minors. Up till now, he's saying that the, that the danger that the Tosus and that the early post talked about, that you don't go to Israel when it's dangerous, that he says, certainly for the adults, that's not relevant. Now, what about the children, he says? So, again, as we, as we noted earlier, with children, there are two issues. One issue is, one issue that some people raise is maybe it's more dangerous for them, the heightened danger for them. And second, they're not capable of giving consent, so that's a problem. So he dismisses both these arguments. He says, If we were to assume, which he is going to assume, that there is no greater danger for minors than for adults, then it would be mutter. And what about this idea that, uh, that, that they're not capable of giving consent, so we, have to, so we can't take any action that could injure them without, without their consent? So he says no. And here he says a very powerful argument which has relevance in many areas of, hal- of halacha, he says, no, the general rule is whatever is considered reasonable and a person, a risk that a person is allowed to undertake for himself, he's allowed to undertake for his fellow Jew, for his child. He brings various examples, which, some of which are a little problematic, 
but he says, this is the rule he establishes. Anything, any risk, any any decision a person's allowed to make for himself is considered reasonable according to halacha. He's allowed to impose on his children too. And therefore he says that based on his conceding, that if we can see that it's not dangerous for them, it's not dangerous for his kids either. This is something that comes up in other areas of halacha, let's say regarding Mila, legabe, medical treatment, different types of decisions. A parent has to make some kind of decisions for his child. He says, this is a risk I want to take. I want to go on this trip. It might be dangerous. I want to, uh, I want to eat this kind of food. I want to do something. And the question is, good, for yourself. What about children? Do you have the right to risk your children? And his answer basically is yes. As long as we decide that an adult, a, that, that an adult who's capable of making decisions of sound mind can make this decision for himself, he has the right to impose that on his children too. You can't, tell, you can't tell a person that there's a special high standard of risk for children. The parent has the right to make those decisions for his children if it's a reasonable decision to begin with. If it's one that we allow him to make for himself, it's not considered reckless self-endangerment regarding his own well-being. He's allowed to impose that on his children too. And there is, uh, you know, and, and, and there's no issue there either. So he says, therefore he says, it's it's good for the children to go to Israel. It's a a valid decision the parents can make, he says. He says, Kama Gedol, and many Gedol have did this, and uh, the the risk was considered minimal or negligible or not something you need to worry about. And therefore, uh, if you can do it for yourself, you can do it for your children too. Now he gets into another interesting point. He says... Even some of the postmen who did worry about the danger, who said that you shouldn't go to Israel, that, that, that the halachas of going to Israel and compelling the spouse to go to Israel don't apply when there is significant danger. He says, even those Gedolei HaMachabrim, even those authors who wrote that there was that the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the trip was dangerous, that there wasn't, the ships didn't commonly go, it was considered a... Uh, a dangerous voyage, they only meant that a person has no right to compel a spouse, a man has no right to compel his wife, if the danger is significant. She can say, I don't want to go, it's too dangerous for me. But the person himself, if if, if the couple agrees, or if a single person wants to make that voyage, then nobody's going to object. A person can have bitachon and Hashem, shor mitzvah, halachic principle, that when you're doing a mitzvah, you can often be concerned with the danger, and so on. This is actually a, a, a rather you know, controversial or rather debatable point. He claims that even when there's danger, you're still allowed to go to Israel. So this is actually something where, where there's considerable, again, conflict and uncertainty in the postkim. There was a discussion about, a similar question came up in the 15th century by the Rashbash, Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, a North African postig. He was also asked about spouses who were arguing about going to Israel from, again, from somewhere on the northern coast of Africa. And he discusses danger, too. And, and again, his primary concern was, was with the question of whether one spouse can force another to go or not. And he says, well, there's danger, no. As to whether the person himself can go, and some of his truths, he says... Once it's dangerous, he shouldn't be going either. Even if there's no argument from the spouses, he shouldn't go if it's dangerous. And other chuvas, though, he indicates he can do whatever he wants. He just can't force her to go. Other postmen have pointed out that Gedolim, that Gedolim Torah throughout the generations have made Aliyah even when it was significantly dangerous. And there is a question in general for any mitzvah. Does a person really have the right to risk his life to assume significant danger to do a mitzvah for any mitzvah? So it's far from clear. Certainly when there is you know, significant danger, we say absolutely not. A person wants a person who's trying to fasten the Yom Kippur and his doctor says, it's dangerous. I can't say for sure you'll die, but there's a significant risk. So we tell him not, we tell him not to do it. We don't say that you have the right to uh, be extra from and, 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 and accept upon yourself significant risk 
to do a mitzvah. Usually we say if there's a real risk to life, don't do it. So obviously here, in the case of the in the case of going to Israel, the risk is still relatively low. I mean, it's higher than we'd like, but it's not. We're not talking about Russian roulette, you know, fifty-fifty or one out of six or so. We're talking about you know there's a, there's a reasonable chance that you know pirates are there, and it's, it's hard again. It's hard to quantify. We don't have numbers here. But whatever this level, it's hard to know even whether any two posts can talk at the same level of risk or not. But in, but in general, this uh, non-trivial but not overwhelmingly likely risk of of getting in trouble on the voyage, some posts can have said that even a person himself shouldn't do it either. If there really is real risk, a person should not do the mitzvah like any other mitzvah we don't do when there's real risk. Other posts can have said no. Other posts can have said that there's a small risk. You can't impose it on somebody else, but you yourself have the right to do it. And that's the point Rabbi Lansover is making here, that a person cannot force his wife to do it if she doesn't want to, but he himself has the right to go. And once he has the right to go, he can bring his children along, even though they're below the age of consent. He can say it's a reasonable risk. I choose to do it. If someone protests, I can't force them, but you know, you're my kids, you're not protesting, and I want to take you along, so he can, he can do this. Even without his wife? Well, in this case, the, the women wanted to go, apparently. In this case, the, the, the adults were all on board. It was just, it was just the kids who were, couldn't be asked. They were too small, so that he said, no, if the spouses both want to go, then they can take their kids, too. The local basin was objecting. They don't get a vote. If, the, if, the, if all the adults who are traveling want to do it, they can bring the kids, too. There's, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's the next issue. Then he makes another interesting point, a very charming point. He says, putting aside halachic precedents and sources within the halacha, even just just look at it uh, empirically. Look at the facts. He says, "What are you worried about? Is, is there really any any greater risk for for kids on the trip than adults?" He says, "What's going to happen if the ship sinks or if the ship gets captured by pirates? Everyone's in the same trouble. If you worry just about the rigors of the journey, the bouncing and the seasickness and all the all the strain of the voyage." He says, kids are hardier than adults, he says. Ketanim betivam kaliat Kids are very flexible. Kids are always running around. Rov gedulam betnuah. Kids spend all their days uh, just jumping and bouncing, he says. He says, so if anything, kids are more resilient than adults, he says. So if you're dealing with real danger, like pirates or shipwreck, then, then the kids are equal to the adults. If you want to talk about just the rigors of the journey, kids are more resilient. Kids can, kids can bounce back more easily. <laughs> so you certainly don't have to worry that this danger is particularly severe, particularly severe for kids. So again, his basic thesis is, if the adults can do it, all the adults, the men and the women, are all on board. They don't have, they don't have to worry about the, about the kids. He goes on, brings other proofs to this basic point. Then he goes on, the, then he goes on and says that, he brings other proof, he says, rabbis, rabbis who live on, the, on, on islands, on seafaring areas, E.A. Hayam, he says, they, they, they've, they've acknowledged, they've written, he says, that they see all the time, people travel all over the place, merchants travel with small children, he says, travel with children is normal and is frequent, he says, even Bnei Yaman, even real infants, so that's, you know, that, that, that's a bit much, but uh, even, even tiny infants, they travel. Um, and he says that he, uh, he actually asked one of them, I asked one of these travelers who travels with very small kids, and he told me the same thing. He says that the, you worry about, the, you worry about the, the turbulence on the ocean and the, the buffeting around, he says. The, the kids are easier, the kids are more resilient, and uh, just like he said, he said, so he's not worried about any any increased danger to the kids. Now, what about the fact he said that the local basin had objected? The local basin had put its foot down and said, "We don't let you go," or they were, they were threatening to do that. They were threatening to issue a formal ruling that they have no right to take their kids. 
This is always a sticky question about local, <laughs> local rabbinic authority and going over their heads to uh, appeal to someone like Rabbi Lansofer, who was not the local rub, apparently. But in this case, he felt the halacha was so clear, he was willing to preemptively overrule and, and allow these people to disregard their local rabbinic authorities. He says, even if the basin will, Shabiram will decree that they cannot travel, you can feel free to ignore them. Because, he said, the facts are the facts. We know that rabbis who are familiar with travel, who live in seafaring areas, they've said that it's not dangerous. That it's, uh, so he said the basin is simply making a mistake. If they rule otherwise, they're essentially making a factual mistake. They're making a black and white mistake, a, a, an error in black letter law, or either the law or the facts, he says, they're simply wrong. And the halacha is that we, we, that we disregard rulings of, of Batei Din if they are simply demonstrably factually incorrect. What happens if it was a... Would it make any difference if by moving it would, uh, it would kill a minion? Right, you know? That's a very good question. So, so stepping away from his chua for a moment... And I mentioned earlier that many many posts can have grappled with the question of why why more Jews do not make Aliyah. So one of the reasons given, often the reasons given for, let's say, rabbis or leaders for not making Aliyah, on the one hand, they're the ones who have kind of expected to have the highest uh, religious standards. On the other hand, they often did not make Aliyah. So one of the reasons given is that their flock needed them, that in Chutzlars, they had communities, they had students, they had uh, people depending on them, and therefore their, their duty to them prevented them from making Aliyah. So, see, you're making a similar point that even a private citizen, there are cases where his community would need him, perhaps for a minion, perhaps, you know, the school, he's, he's an important, uh, everyone plays some role in the community, and some play religiously, and some play a more prominent role than others. So, so this in general, this is something, again, it's usually applied, I think, to, to rabbis and community leaders, but the question is, you know, would, 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 the, would, 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 the, would the question is, would the mayor... The simple, simple fact of being a minion, would that be a strong enough reason to not make Aliyah? I don't recall seeing anything directly about this. There are other chuvas. I remember a chuva about a local question. It wasn't Aliyah, but somebody wanted to leave a small, leave a town where he, where he was integral to the minion, and he was actually prevented, I think, from doing so by, I think there was an assumption of commitment there when he, when he had moved in. They had, had some agreement he would stay for a certain amount of time. Even in uh, even in Lakewood, I had a friend who moved with a group of people to a very isolated, small development out you know, a few miles out from the heart of Lakewood. And he told me when they first moved in, they had a like, informal agreement. They had an agreement that nobody they had, I think, thirteen people there or something. A, a little bit of redundancy, but they had an agreement that everyone had to clear their their visits away for Shabbos for with with the community to make sure that every week they had a mini left. Yes. And what about Aliyah? So I'm not sure. My my sense would be that the even though Minion is important, it would be overridden by the mitzvah of Aliyah, but it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. And it would probably it'd probably be somewhat of somewhat of a judgment call like, like how important he was to the community beyond the mere technical fact of Minion, but that is an interesting uh, is an interesting question. So in this case, he says, and he kind of makes a related point in the next line. He says, "You can disregard the, you can disregard the basin if, if they're wrong." He says, "You can disregard a parent when he's wrong." Kolshkein, you can disregard the basin, and so on. So I actually, uh, I actually recently, recently encountered a uh, interesting discussion between the. A little bit of a debate between Rabbi Yezir de Waldenberg at Sicily Ezer in Israel and Rav Nisim, the former chief rabbi. The question was whether there were youth groups 
youth movements, Akiva, whatever they were, who were encouraging kids to make Aliyah. And sometimes they were doing this, pushing it hard, even against the will of the parents. They were encouraging them to not listen to their parents, to do it, do it anyway. The question was, is that appropriate? So the, the conflict, of course, is between Kibbut Aim and making Aliyah. So Rav Nisim, I think, held that making Aliyah is a big mitzvah. It's more important than Kibbut Aim, and it overrides. If your parents are telling you to do something, you, you have to respect your parents, but it's more important to do the right thing. So you, they're perfectly, they're perfectly within their rights to encourage kids to make Aliyah. They can argue that it's not a productive strategy because they're going to lose their kids. They, they, if they don't, if they don't cooperate with parents, you're, you're, you're not going to be successful. But as a, in principle, Rav Nisim argued that that was correct. And while Rav Waldenberg said no, they're actually post who say that listening to your parents does override uh, does override Kibbut uh, listening to parents does override and again, and that really hinges on one of the same questions that, that underlies the question that underlies all these discussions of Eretz Yisrael which is how imperative is it really to go to Israel most of us don't go to Israel obviously we don't feel that it's absolutely mandatory upon us as Jews either we don't feel it's mandatory or we feel that it's much more uh, context sensitive than the you know, film we don't have an option you put on film you have to it's not, it's not optional but uh, Eretz Yisrael either it's not mandatory or we feel that it's that it's much less black and white. So once you're agreeing that it's, uh, it's more nuanced and certainly listening to your parents and not defending your parents could be, could be much more of a factor than it is if your parents tell you uh, don't take a lulav in circus this year. So anyway, but right, in this tshuva, so, so far he fails certainly with the people themselves wanting to make Aliyah with just the Basin trying to step in and block them. The Basin is wrong, the facts are on their side, the dangers are well within the range of acceptable, the fact that their kids doesn't matter, he's saying... Then he goes in the, in the last section of the tshuva and makes a, uh, a very kind of modern-sounding point, a very a point we can all relate to, I think. He says, there's one condition, there's one issue which he thinks might be a good reason to give them pause that they should you know, rethink or, or carefully consider whether it's right to make aliyah, and that is parnasa. He says, it's only appropriate to make aliyah if you have a plan, if you have a reasonable expectation of making ends meet. He says, if you don't have parnas, if you're going to go there and just uh, become a ward of the state or live off tzedakah or just, you know, that's not appropriate, he says. Being poor, he says, is bad for one's religious uh, development, he says. It causes a person to rebel against God and to become estranged from religion. And he says that... He says, um, his time, obviously, the economy wasn't much in Israel, and uh, it, was pretty, it, was pretty, it was pretty grim out there. He says, we, we are familiar, firsthand, he says, many, that Rov Habayim Shama, most people who try to make Aliyah, because of the desperate poverty, he says, they, have to, they return, they give up, and through all this, the, 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 the turmoil and... Um, and uh, you know, displacement and distraction, he says, it disturbs their Avodah Hashem and their Torah, all the worrying and the karmic arrangements, he says. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, not always responsible to make Aliyah if it comes at the cost of destroying your, your broader, more general spiritual life, he says. Now, Allah is, he says, normally there's a rule that if you do live in Israel, you're not even supposed to leave. You're not supposed to leave at all. You're not, you're not supposed to ever emigrate back to Chutzlar. One exception is to go to Yeshiva. To learn Torah, that's one of the few reasons you're allowed to do it. Certainly, he says, if you're, if, you have, if you're able to learn Torah in Chutzlar, so the disruptions of going to Israel is going to be problematic, certainly you shouldn't do that. 
and if Parnassus is hard in general, then it's not such a good idea. So certainly if it's going to affect your your, your shiurim, your chabrusas, you shouldn't do it. Even in general, he says, it, it causes uh, it causes spiritual uh, disruption, he says, and therefore if a person is not going to have a, <coughs> a reliable means of making Parnassus there, then it is a bad idea. Now again, this is much more of a, just like the danger, this was much more of a concern in his time. The economy was, was a shambles. It was non-existent. That most people were living off money sent from Chutzlar. So I guess somebody made money somehow, but in general, you know, there weren't jobs. It wasn't an economy. Today, obviously, where we have a thriving, you may not make as much as you make in Chutzlar, and depending on, obviously, there are some skill sets which are less transferable, which are more transferable, but certainly the situation is vastly better than it was in his day. The person has to honestly uh, figure out, I guess, whether whether he has a reasonable expectation of being able to make a living in Israel. It doesn't have to be an American living, but it has to be a living where he can have a functional family and be able to continue his devote as Hashem. And Aklal he says, in summary, the basic rule is, uh, it's uh, praiseworthy is he happy is he who is married such a thing who can go to Israel and be self-sufficient and he can, he can make ends meet even you, you won't be living like an American necessarily you might not have a car and you might not have two cars and you might not have all the luxuries you used to in the Chutzlarts and he can do it to live a higher more pure spiritual life so if you can do that great not everyone can can manage that, he says. And the minutaka is, he says, because of this, people don't travel with small children. And that's because of Parnassus. Not because it's dangerous. Danger is not an issue, he says. But it's Parnassus. For a person himself, he wants to make ends meet as a single guy, as a retired fellow. He can do that. But a person who's, who's bringing young children and is going to have to raise them without Parnassi, he says, that's not good, for, that's not healthy for young children, he says. We would call this uh, youth at risk or something like that, or dropping out or tuning out, he says. It's hard enough to raise kids in a stable environment to try to raise kids. Where you'd say we worry about the schools and we worry about the, the friends, but Parnassus is a big thing. It's to raise them without money, he says, before they're old and mature and can understand that we're sacrificing for Torah. That is a very bad thing. Many people have fallen and tripped in this area of Adila Maven. Just think about this very carefully. I always remember. I was once talking to a very Haredi relative friend of mine in Israel, and I was expressing admiration for some of what the settlers were doing, living out there on uh, isolated places with minimal infrastructure and the danger involved, just for an ideal. I said, you know, you can agree with them, not agree with them, I said, but there's a certain idealism you have to admire. So my friend told me, he said that he has a problem with it, he said he thinks it's unhealthy to raise kids like that. So I told him, okay, but I said, you, I said you, you admire the people who live in poverty, in poverty to devote themselves to Torah and Avodah uh, Hashem. Some would say that's not healthy to raise kids like that. He says, no, but these kids understand that it's for an ideal, it's for a, good, it's for a spiritual reason. I said, okay, yeah, these kids understand it's also for a spiritual ideal. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the point is the post can do recognize, like this true of Miltaduka, he recognizes that it can be seriously unhealthy, psychically, spiritually, for a kid to raise him in a life of poverty. So be very careful, he says, before you make Aliyah, think it through whether this is really going to be something that is good for the kid. Think whether you have a proper Parnassah. That's what he's a danger he's not worried about, but this is, this is what he is worried about. And he concludes in the last paragraph, he says, certainly, he says, if you're going to Israel and you expect to have to live off Tadaka, 
and your and, and the situation is such that if you remained in Chutzlaret, you would be able to be self-sufficient. He says that certainly is not appropriate. Lotovosin, this is incorrect. He says that Chazal placed a great premium on being self-sufficient on not becoming uh, a ward of the community. Even a Shabbat Chachol, a person should give up the the covet Shabbos, the delicacies of Shabbos, rather than uh, maintain your independence and dignity and not rely on charity. So this this kind of thing, the the dangers of not having economic stability in Israel, that's the one thing that gives him serious pause. That Davar Shakul, and he can hear arguments both ways. That he's not willing to rule on. He doesn't have an opinion. So the danger is not an issue. This issue is uh, this is a real issue. So just to, just to add a little bit to the chuva, what kind of things we, we've we've touched on that you raised you know, throughout the discussion about what's what are the the major dispensations for not going to Israel? So first of all, we said it's not clear how mandatory it is. The main the main thing discussed in halachic context by the poskim is the question of danger that it was considered da- the travel was dangerous, which I think is clear is not an issue with Manazeh. You have Rebbeim Cohen Svar that we're not really we can't do the mitzvahs properly, but that's again largely rejected by the poskim. So what are we left with? We're left with we're left with the concern the concern about parnasa, obviously, which he raises that the if a person won't be able to make ends meet in Israel and will either struggle in poverty or will have to accept charity, those are both bad things and, and a reason not to make aliyah. We have the Kibra Avim question. We have the idea that many poskim say that a person's duty to his parents. You know, overrides the mitzvah going to Israel. So, that, so there's an interesting question. When we talk about duty to parents, what do we mean? Certainly if someone's parents live with him and are, are infirm and he actually takes care of them, that's classic Hebrew Aveim. The question is usually what happens is you know, the parents are still fine, are still healthy, just if they miss their kids or they're, they're worried about their kids and they don't want them to go to Israel, it's far away. They won't see them as much. They won't see the grandchildren. That is much less clear like, to what extent that's even a mitzvah of Hebrew Aveim at all. Just listening to your parents' preferences. Still, I think posts can often say that's also a form of kibbutz aim, even if you're not actually taking care of them, but just obeying them and doing their will. So kibbutz aim is, uh, is is definitely a real argument. People have people have parents who uh, strongly want them to remain strongly want them to remain locally. So that would certainly be a reason to uh, that would certainly be a reason to remain locally. We mentioned the other svar that some posts can have said that for the certainly for community leaders or even even laymen, but if, if they're presumably you could extend the argument even to laymen if their presence is is important to the community and by leaving they would be uh, causing harm or you know, or damaging the, the health of the community that itself would be a would be a reason to uh, to remain in Kutzlarts. There was there was another issue that there was just I think some anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. Everyone was talking about it. So there, there was there was an issue which Satmer kind of pioneered and made famous. That, that there was an issue that the Gemara in Ksuvas that talks about the mitzvah to go to Israel. The Gemara says that once we went into Gullus, there was a an oath. God made us take an oath that we would submit to the authority of the, of the non-Jews. We would grant that they have sovereign control over the, over the world. Now we will not rebel against them and try to try to reestablish Jewish sovereignty in Israel. The, the language that Talmud uses is we won't we won't be Ola Bahoma. We won't very obscure phrase. We won't. It's usually translated to mean we won't. By force, by, uh, by, 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 by strength of arms, by, by strength of numbers, we won't push our way back into Israel and retake the country from the non-Jews until Mashiach or until Hashem gives us the green light. So beginning around a century ago, 
or two centuries ago, when, when Jews began to return to Israel in significant numbers, various posts have debated what exactly are we committed to doing here, what are we not allowed to do. Many posts can argue, many, many rabbis argue that we're not allowed to set up a movement to overthrow the sovereign power, but certainly with the Balfour Declaration, with the consent of the, of the League of Nations, whatever it was at the time, to, to the, the UN later, to, to, to give the Jews a homeland in Palestine, they were the ones in charge, the, Britain, the British were in charge of Palestine, if they let us come, we were not violating any, uh, we were not violating these oaths by returning to Israel because we have there, we have the authority's permission. Romare Simcha Dvinsk and others made this point in, in one form or another that the, that the prohibition, anyway, they said it only applies to like organized and national aliyah and never applies to individuals making aliyah. Nevertheless, there were some, the Satmar community in particular, who felt that any kind of organized national uh, attempt to reassert ourselves in Israel does run afoul of these, what, what are called the Shaloshvus, the three oaths. The Satmar, the Satmar Rebbe wrote an entire work. Um, wrote an entire work uh, by Yol Moshe, which was trying to establish that these oaths are important and binding and prevent any kind of organized political activity, but his position, I think, is somewhat of a minority opinion. Postcom in general have felt that the, that it is appropriate to, certainly individually, to return to Israel. Most postcom today would say it's at least a mitzvah, whether it's mandatory or not, and how strong all these other dispensations are, are, are mostly taken as judgment calls, but in general we would say it is a mitzvah, mandatory or not, and certainly, like he says, someone who can go and can support himself and can raise his kids properly, and can do it with, uh, without disruption to his spiritual life, happy is he, blessed is he, who's able to merit such a thing.